Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and today we've got a great one for you. Hot on the heels of Ten of Swords, we have the first issue of John Hickman's X-Men to come out after the end of the event as well as a look back a month out. What does Ten of Swords mean to the current X-Men landscape? We're also going to see an appearance by the Power Pack but first up we have that aforementioned John Hickman X-Men issue. Now this issue sees the departure of Lionel Francis Yu as regular penciler and Phil Noto come on to make the transition a little bit easier. Additionally, in this next segment, I'm joined by Jonah, Nathan, and newcomer Drew to discuss what was easily one of the most compelling and story-propelling issues of X-Men to come out in quite a while. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico and you can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. Hey, it's Drew. You can find me online at Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, LinkedIn at Drewcipher3, D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And I'm Jonah and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike the bond between Arako and Krakoa, because you know what? Brothers drift apart all the time and so do lovers. Yeah, I was like, brothers, okay, <laughs> brothers. <laughs> Roommate. Lovers, roommates roommates and now they don't want to talk anymore yeah and like guys like so we've had this sort of long-running joke and by long running i mean the last two weeks i guess where we're like are we ever gonna see anything happening with Araco and krakoa what the fuck they do all this shit and they bring a whole bunch of people to the island and they send apocalypse apocalypse has been voted off the island and he is the weakest link and they're banking no money but they're banking tons of mutants and so, like, I'm getting all caught up in who wants to be an apocalyptier, and, like, we're not seeing Arako. I'm almost convinced that the writers and the artistic team at Marvel listened to this and were like, oh, they we forgot about this. Quickly. <laughs> Quickly. Because it doesn't feel like it's a repeating habit where one week we're like, we haven't seen this in a while. Why is it this? And the next week they cover it. I think there's a spy and uh, a mole among us. I would not be surprised. I, Phil Noto. It's more like, Phil, yes. To, I'm so sorry, Phil. I just, I wanted the, I wanted Ooh. the joke. And uh. I... I'm going to go stand in my corner of sadness. This is as great a time as ever. So, Drew, welcome to the program. We're well, super thanks. glad to have you. Thanks. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, right, we like to make sure that everybody here has an identity. We like to make sure that you know who you're listening to. And, you know, for some of us, you've been listening to us for over 170 episodes. So, like, you kind of know who we are by now. But so that everybody can get a crash course in the fan that is Drew, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we're going to play a game. Yeah. So my name is Drew. I'm actually, I'm Canadian. So I uh, live in Ontario, Canada, kind of near Detroit, actually. 
I've been reading X-Men for a little over 10 years. I started about when Civil War was happening uh, during the Mike Carey run. And yeah, I've been reading ever since. I really started hopping on the bandwagon recently with just before the current run, the Jean Grey solo title. That's when I really started gearing up for it. Before that, though, I was just going back reading like catching up, you know. Well, I love your experience because era-wise, it's unique to anybody else on the show. And I, I kind of love that perspective because when you come in imprints on you, you kind of become that fan. Like, you know, Mike Carey's legacy will always stay with you now. It's like hard with the beginning of it because I I started with the Red Data run of it. I started buying from like, like a corner store, basically. So I started in the middle of a run, like no one issue, like two of, or part two of the story. So I actually didn't really understand what was happening. It was kind of confusing. I kind of had to go back. I started collecting trade um, and doing it that way instead of doing floppies. And that's kind of like what I meant is now I'm kind of more into floppies. I did. I don't really consider though Mike Carey to be my start, my starting point, just because I didn't finish the run and I wasn't reading it consistently. The main run that actually I think got me started was the Dark Phoenix Saga. That brings us to our amazing questions. Now we're going to direct these questions that you first drew and then to the greater team. So I got to know, in one to two people, favorite X-Men? Yeah, so like I said, my intro into X-Men is basically Dark Phoenix Saga. So my favorite characters are Jean Grey, Emma Frost, and Cyclops. You know, for me, it's Jean Grey, Emma Frost, and Logan. So I really like your picks, right? It's just, (laughs) we're just swapping out which side of the bed there. So Jonah, Nathan, hit me. Who are your X-Men? Top favorite. One, two, three, give them to me. I don't think there's any surprise on my part. Dazzler, Karma, and Danny Moonstar. <laughs> so you're just all about that 82 to 84 life. Like, oh, you're just really yeah. stuck there. Yeah. I'm like stuck in the year I was born. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Your first X era really imprints on you. Now, Jonah, how about you? Well, first, those who don't follow me on social media, you wouldn't know that I actually have an X-Man character tattooed on my body. So if my devotion to Nightcrawler wasn't any more, you know, obvious than that tattoo, I can't help you. But if you would like to reach out to me, I could definitely try to help you. Emma Frost, because Emma gives the gays everything they want. And then I personally love Ileana more than anything in the world. And nobody can tell me otherwise in my eyes. Ileana can never do wrong. I specifically, I'm not saying good or bad. Ileana can't do wrong. And then a very, very, very close third for that my favorite ex-woman is Boom Boom because I love Boom Boom. <laughs> Boom Boom is my everything. And Boom Boom says what we're all thinking all the time. No, because you don't need to justify it. You just love Boom Boom. Boom Boom Jojo is amazing. Jojo love Boom Boom. Jojo love Boom Boom. Tabitha is my trailer park trash, and I I just want to drink with her. Maybe not when she's like super drunk going through Sam's room. But, right. Like, I would drink with her. So now I gotta know from favorite X Man to favorite X Run, which X Run defines your fandom? I think for me it's got to be kind of that cross section of New X Men, X Core. Extreme X-Men, like that perfect year. Early 2000s. Yeah, that like perfect year of 2001 to 2002, just like spectacular. Mine was Dark Phoenix Saga. But then, I, yeah, I also do like the Morrison run. Another run that I think is very underrated is the, the Matt Fraction run. Oh, it going like into the Kieran Gillen run also. Ooh, yeah. So like Sisterhood through Utopia into the Return to Break world. Interesting. Yeah. A, a run I enjoy and certainly plan to revisit someday. Nathan. Jonah, how about you guys? All right. 
probably I could go with the boring answer, which is like Excalibur 42 to 50, which is, oh my God, amazing, got me into comic books. But I'll probably go with my more recent answer, which would be Christina Strange Generation X run, which was amazing. And Jonah? For me, I'm going to say it's a tie between Grant Morrison's new X-Men run and the original run of New Mutants. Ooh. Ooh, Ooh love yeah. it. And special shout out to Ecstatics because, you know, and like the whole of Ecstatics. When I say Ecstatics, I obviously mean all of X-Force 114 through X-Force 129, plus the two issues of the Dupe miniseries, plus My Marvel Mutant Heart, plus the, what is it, the Brotherhood issue nine story and the X-Men Unlimited Hard Day's Night by Darwin Cook. I obviously mean all of these things. <laughs> so, you know, um, special shout out to that, right? Now, favorite crossover. This one's kind of tougher. Not everybody knows all the crossovers. So, Jonah, you have the limitedest pool of crossovers to pull from. I think properly you've read one X-Men crossover, and I do believe... Um, that's your, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's kind of sort of the secret wars for you. So, like, I, I, I just, I love you so much and just feel so bad. I, I, I guess I, because my pool is so small, which Limit Pool, Deadpool's cousin. Much <laughs> I, Obsessed with Final Fantasy VII. I guess I have to choose Ten of Swords because Secret Wars is, I think Secret Wars is the B horror film of the, you know, Marvel franchise. Mm, that's, yeah. Now, okay, Drew, favorite crossover so i feel like although i've read a decent amount of x-men i haven't read that many crossover events um i have read avengers versus x-men but yeah that was to just like okay to me i actually didn't hate it as much as everyone else seems to hate it um yes you would probably have to hate it a little bit less than i hate it to call it just okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but i am i'm i'm reading them i'm almost done the morrison run right now i'm reading it for like a second time but i'm making my way into doing the 80s my road to inferno so mm. i'm starting with uh, x factor and then I'm going to do uh, Mutant Massacre, Follow the Mut Mutants, all that stuff. So, coming up. I can provide you with a pretty legitimate read order on that, if you'd like. Like, a, like a pretty fluid read order. I am a little obsessed with creating fluid read orders. Now, Nathan, I got to know, what is your crossover du jour? What is the crossover de Nathan? Ooh, so many to choose from. Like... It's a really itty bitty small crossover, but I would say the Asgardian Wars because it was really only like New Mutants and X Men. I don't know if that counts as a crossover. And also, really weird choice would be the New Warriors and X Force crossover, Child's Play. Love that one. Now, here's the thing I'm going to bump up your itty bitty crossover to a beepy boopy crossover because it's also got those two issues of X-Men Alpha Flight that yes. everybody said pretended to go with those so they could repackage it into a story. <laughs> and, like, what's really fucking ridiculous is those are, like, two double-sized issues and then two more double-sized issues. So that's, like, an eight-issue mega trade. I can't even talk about it. I love both of those choices. One's a deep cut, and the other one's a really deep cut, so you're going to want to get that one checked out by a doctor. And I guess if I had to pick, like, uh, that crossover, that really fucked me up but good i would say age of x oh yes oh my god mike carries age of x that ran through age of x unlimited x-men legacy and new mutants was just such a spectacular slice of the universe it did you know i've long said that i think that days of future past was able to accomplish what age of apocalypse did in two issues like 
I've long maintained that. And that's not necessarily a knock against Age of Apocalypse. They're two very different creatures. I think Age of X goes on that same list. It accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. And for that, I give it uber kudos. Yeah, it was nice. It had a whole lot of nice big slice of everything and like not too much of everything. So, yeah. Now, for favorite costume, favorite uniform, I got to know, you know, we are four men who care about what our superheroes <laughs> look like. And I don't want to be ridiculous, but we are four men that fucking care about what superheroes look like. And that has to be OK. And for that reason, new X-Men, guys. Don't be an idiot. New X-Men, where they all look so cool and everybody wears t-shirts of their own superpowers. I really, truly love the new X-Men era visually. And I'll be honest, if I've got to have a kind of cool second place, wow, the visuals on that era, it's going to go to Excalibur by Warren Ellis. There was something really chill about how everybody just constantly wore like real people clothes. It wasn't about the super heroics. It was about the going to the corner store to get milk. <laughs> or and the bar. The bar. To the bar, yeah. They, they weren't about their super I, – I guess what I'm saying is I love the plain clothes of super heroics. I was raised on Law & Order with Lenny Briscoe, and he didn't wear a cop's uniform. He wore his normal clothes, and I think that's what really imprinted on me. I like my X-Men like I like my Law & Order. Plain clothes detectives. <laughs> And iced tea in the background. Ooh. And iced tea in the background, yeah. So what about you guys? Favorite era or individual person costume? It doesn't have to be an everybody look. It can be a single person look. Kitty's wonderful wardrobe throughout. No. <laughs> the roller derby one? Her Excalibur one's not that bad. Her Excalibur one I like. I would say that her Excalibur one's not, like, it's still not a good costume. But if, if like, out of all of her costumes, it's probably the best. But she does frequently look like she's auditioning for the ice capades, you guys. <laughs> she does. <laughs> so my favorite era is probably the Jim Lee era, just because all of the costumes from every single person in the era is iconic. And a lot of them are the costume that they're still based off of today. As opposed to like, the person that I think has the most iconic costumes are probably Jean or Emma. More particularly Emma, because she varies it up a little bit more, especially in this new era. Especially when she had Jumbo Carnation resurrected to be her personal fashion slave. Yes, exactly. Ooh. <laughs> her outfits are so on point oh my god so i kind of love a really cheesy one like moira mctaggart like april o'neill yellow jumpsuit i love it for some reason don't know why no i dig it i get it i get it i do it's it's legit it's like yellow with some like pink circles on it and i'm like oh, i mean maybe half circles whatever and then like probably like overall favorite overall would be that one time Storm wore the Morrison uniform with a, like a little mini skirt that was so cute and her hair in a ponytail. I was like, yes. I did love that. I did love that. Yes. So now that leaves us with one final question. What is the X thing you kind of just never gotten? The thing where you're like, I, I, I don't hate anybody who loves it. I just maybe don't get it. If there's something I've never really gotten, I've never really understood Angel and Psylocke in the first place. So when they get back together in Uncanny X-Force, I still kind of don't get it. It, like, never made any sense to me. So I kind of, that's probably my I don't get it. Like, when a couple didn't work the first time, why do you do it again? But people love it because they redid it. And we even got into a thing with Arturo about it recently, where he was like, I am shocked to hear you guys say you do not love this. And Evelyn and I were just like, no. 
wow, I agree with Otoro on that one. I'm like, <gasps> but it also... makes so much sense. It makes so much sense because they both went through body modification issues. Anyway, and they're both rich. So They're both rich. Both their parents have Hellfire Club connections. There's a lot there. Yeah. Maybe they're too similar. They're textually so similar. Where's the depth? Where's the nuance? My, one thing that I don't, I'm, I know I'm going to get flack for this one, so I'm kind of like scared to say it. I hate Frank Quietly's art in New X-Men. I, okay, <laughs> here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The way he draws Emma, she's like a pinky finger. She's like straight, like straight. Her legs are longer than her torso. I describe them as pudding people. Jean's <laughs> uh, eyes are literally on either side of her head and she looks like a fish. I like, what to me, Jean is supposed to be like hot. <laughs> so like, I'm just kind of like, uh, like, I don't know. Like that's you like- know what? <laughs> With the pinky thing, you know what? Now Scott's head looks like the back yes, of the thumb. and Scott's head is like, yes. So the first time I read Neil X-Men, I messaged Nico saying, why does Gene look like Charles Xavier with a red wig on? <laughs> like, it's just like... And like, I don't like, I mean, I have another, I have another one too. So real quick, I was standing here with my hands ready to clap for you because like, whenever anybody comes out with a controversial opinion, I'm like, so brave. Like, cause I don't care. It's your fandom and yeah. you're allowed to fan whatever you fan. But then you said something incorrect. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I played along real nice for the segment. Okay. Now I know where you live in Canada. <laughs> I hated Frank Quietly's art the first time I saw it too. I came to appreciate it more uh, as I came to appreciate like storytelling over art aesthetically. Like it's, I, I do get something from it, but I was so turned off by it the first time I read it that I was like, I hate this new X-Men thing. Yeah. I mean like, so, like it's, it's, really get it. it's not that I hate it enough that I can't read it. Like it's, it's not that I'm just kind of like, ugh, like why are we like, it's like stick people but with shape <laughs> you know like everyone is just like straight line you know like no body no body shape so this one's a little controversial and it's not that i hate the character i just don't quite understand the like unabashed love some people have for it and nico don't kill me logan I just logan i just don't don't get it i assumed you were gonna say deadpool and i was like <laughs> yeah i get it everybody doesn't get deadpool i get it and then you said Logan, and now I'm like, I know where you live, you're like near Chicago or something, so you're next. And no, I mean, I get it. These characters are, it's like Batman, where like, if I see one more fucking Batman yeah. story, I just can't. Mm -hmm. Like, when, he, when Logan's written well, oh my god, it's amazing, but like, there's, there's not a lot of like oh my god amazing logan stories out there that i just i don't quite get it i like the character i just don't get the like big overblown hype place in the x-men mythos i'll give you the best of logan stories if you don't mind reading some really out of order stuff and i'll like i'll show you what the best of what there is and i'll show you the best there is that what is he does and then I'll also point you to some stuff where you'll never forgive me, just so you, <laughs> you, know, you see that I still do have the balance. Something that I don't always understand about X-Men, reading stuff, you know, jumping through time, like I'm Rachel, and reading different things, is that there are characters who seem to grow, and there are characters who seem to have been stuck in the past from their first iteration. And I don't quite understand why the characters who were stuck in their past iterations aren't growing as characters. We talk about a lot how Colossus is a sad boy he's been a sad boy for over 30 years now 
where there's I haven't seen any growth from Colossus. I, I haven't seen any growth from his as a designer or a mutant. So I don't I don't get it. I personally can't stand Northstar. I think <laughs> great things for the gay community by proving that gay people can be assholes too. But like I can't stand him. Anytime he's on a page, I get annoyed. <laughs> And, like, he's been an asshole for quite a long time, so... Okay, I can see that, yeah. I was I was really into, like, him as character because, like, yeah, he was the first out gay superhero, but then, like, he's such a dick. Ugh. Let's ask our queer Canadian, how do you feel <laughs> about these hot takes? I'm also a twin, too, so if, if that adds to anything. <laughs> um, I actually, I don't, I don't know too much about Northstar. When I heard you guys said that last time on the podcast, it gave Nico a little bit of black. I think I care more for Alpha Flight as a whole than him by himself. Like Snowbird yeah. forever. Yeah, it's I, I would yeah. I would say more it's more guard I like more Guardian the most. Like he's kind of like the Canadian, you know, other than Wolverine, obviously. <laughs> the guy the guy with a giant maple leaf on him is the most Canadian. No, I just mean like he's like the Canadian, you know, like Captain Britain or Captain America, you know. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. And I it's one of the first ones I it's like one of the first runs I like got the whole complete thing on. So I love Alpha. Although Vindicator, I love her. Heather Hudson. Today we're going to be taking a look at X-Men number 16 by Jonathan Hickman and Phil Noto, which, you know, I had been very honestly nervous about trying to transition off of Lionel Francis U and having Phil Noto come in was the most incredible delicate landing I could have hoped for. We had VCs Clayton Cowles on Letterer, which once again we've explained is virtual calligraphy in case anybody's wondering. That's the company that does Marvel's letters. And we have Tom Muller on design. And the plot of this issue is essentially that following a tournament of swords, the island of Krakoa is reuniting with its long lost other half, Araco. But what that means for mutant kind and Krakoa and Araki remains to be seen. And also, the islands don't want to bang anymore. And that's gotta be handled handled in a real serious way so just first first things first i fucking loved this issue i put it up there with uh x-men number seven for my x book of the year this is just fucking incredible and gave me everything i was looking for post ten of swords how did you guys feel just like off the bat your gut reaction to this issue i also really liked it a lot I love any single time we get a quiet council meeting. I'm here for it. It's it's gonna be like on the top of my fave issues. So it left me wanting so much more, but we got so much. Like ah, oh, it's so like I, I could do a whole series with quiet council meeting, just like you were saying. Please. It was like amazing. Ah, oh. and you know we've there's precedent for how that can be interesting. Bendis produced the Illuminati series. A number of years ago, there was a one-shot followed by a five-issue miniseries that helped kick off Secret Invasion. So there's precedent and potentiality for it, and I would definitely enjoy that. Now, Jonah, I was laying next to you, and I was like, you have to fucking read this right now. And like, I made kind of made you read it right then. How do you feel about this issue that you were made to read at basically gunpoint? There's a joke there. I really, 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 really did enjoy it. I think what I enjoyed the most about this is it's kind of... And it's going to sound weird and convoluted, but just follow me for three seconds that it's an in-universe way that the writers said we care about the Krakoans and we care about what the people think. And it's this really almost beautiful way of saying, sure, we could have formed an X-Men team where we handpicked the, you know, the best mutants and the top ones who, as Scott would say, they get the job done. 
but instead we're having a way for the mutants of Krakoa to voice and elect the people that they think would represent them best because they didn't get to elect the quiet council the quiet council's there and they were like we're gonna make sure that we have rules which is great because we need rules and you need someone to interpret those rules but you also need to have people who understand what the people want and are acting out for their best interests and this is stuff that Scott and Jean were saying so having the writers talk about that I think was really amazing to say we care about you you have a choice in the matter even though they already know who they're picking but still it's like it's fun it's fun to like to pretend that I'm a mutant uncle call and be like oh I could be an I could be on the x-men team that's part of the magic of this issue it's all about the coming together and separating of natural elements that have worked together for so long I think the first thing that caught my eye with this issue is the kind of throwback to x-men number two that was the opening few pages we'd all kind of said what happened to summer's family time that sort of kicked off this whole issue and here we have cable rachel and cyclops standing beholding this you know reaction of nature and they see that this is not going to go the way they want and i kind of love seeing that dynamic again because i think that's one of the things that hickman kind of said hey i promise you're gonna get you're gonna get this magical family unit that we've been trying to get at for so long and whether it's all four of them together it's scott gene rachel and cable or it's a few of them at a time and or plus bonus vulcan or plus bonus corsair who the fuck ever shows up at the clone party except madeline i think that's one of the things that makes the John Hickman era special and different. And I'm, I'm for one, really happy to see that unit together again. How did you guys feel about Daddy and the Kid Hit Squad running around beholding the island birthing? Well, rejecting <laughs> and yeah, again, to me, it's like any of these family moments. Here's the thing with Hickman. This issue is putting in all of the moments. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like, I love those moments. I love those moments with the family coming up with the council meeting. And then at the very ending with like Gene, Cyclops and Magneto and Xavier. It's just like full of like those moments that we keep seeing throughout the series. I'm just like, I'm here for them. This kind of stuff makes me, has made me re-question my, maybe not hatred, but my like tepid dislike of Scott Summers over the years. I, and, and yeah, I I gotta let go of the whole Madeline Pryor thing. I mean, I totally understand it. But, like, just, like, these little cute moments with, like, Scott and Rachel and Nathan. Like, like I'm like, oh. And, like, I just feel so happy for Rachel because I know, like, this is, like, what she's wanted her whole life. Like, oh, she's got to be, like, beaming with joy with these moments. Does Scott have to give, you know, the uh, the island and tentacle talk to <laughs> Because there was some stuff there. I would imagine he had some questions. And I don't know how much of Kid Cable remembers of old Cable. Because I imagine, you know, old man Cable has had at least some amount of sex in his life. <laughs> I really did appreciate the family moments. It's very reminiscent of the first issue. And it's a really great thing that I think they're covering. Because the Summers family has so much history. And there's a lot of things things you can do to clean it up and make it a really great story of coming together and family and all that you know wonderful hallmarkness so i do appreciate having those moments of scott being a father not even for the kids sake but for the reader's sake of you know being able to say to see 
okay, this is a pretty large, convoluted family. We can, we can, you know, do something with this. You know, uh, Summer's family values. It's coming through on the promise of something. You know, yep. we've always been told we're going to get to see Scott as daddy. And now here's Scott being like, do 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 guys, get out your big guns. We're going to go a hunting <laughs> island. Yeah, now, Drew, how do you feel about the Summer's dynamic as it blossoms in the pages of Reign of X? In, like, this Hickman era, we're seeing, like, I, I'm finding, like, the character development and like literally every single character is like their own each individual person for them to to do this to cyclops is literally it took nothing for them to do like it didn't really take a personality change or like a retcon or anything like they didn't have to do any they just have to make him a good father and just bring the characters together so it's always like fun to see it i don't know too much about rachel i haven't read that much stuff she was in the gold and that's pretty much all i've read her in so to like i said to to get to know her um in this like character driven era is fun and I feel like getting to know characters has been one of the hallmarks of the Hickman era. It's almost as if you're not a character piece. You can't hang with us. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that attitude on it because I'm going to remind everybody, I came out the swingingest, hardest, angriest, anti-cypherist ever. I had a long-running joke that Cypher was the most evil mutant in the world and that he was going to bring us all down. And I kind of find myself humorously regretting those words because I really like the cipher we've come to get to know. I do still think there's the potentiality for some dark, scary undertones, and I think we've seen them before. But this cipher is calm, kind, and benevolent of spirit and that's something that i really like for him you know these sequences with him communicating on the part of krakoa i felt were just as telling of growth and development as the sequences of cyclops with his kids were and it's very different because you know one of the things that they're trying to push on us is in the pages of x-men the new mutants might still go by the title new mutants but that's just a banner These new mutants have grown up. They are also diplomats. This is a new world that the X-Men are a part of. And having the new mutants serve in more than camp counselor capacities, no offense, Warpath, we love you, is so significant. I, for one, welcome this change in Cypher and can honestly say, even if it's just for this run, I'm well aboard the Cypher train. Anybody else feeling like they finally understand how to read Cypher now? I, I actually feel like um long time having love cipher. I really feel like this is a continuation of that same character. And I, I love that it does show the growth and it love that it shows um a lot more maturity and he's getting a lot more comfortable in his powers and his role. And I have to say, like weird side note, just his uniform without warlock now, it looks kind of funny to me. Cause mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, wait, oh, I know why his arm's not circuit, because warlock's all around going around. But like it just looks so like different. It's such a striking change. Yeah, you're right. You know, I kind of was like, I can't place my finger on it. It's like when you're watching a bunch of later next gen and then you randomly watch an early episode of next gen and you're like, what the fuck is wrong with Riker's <laughs> face? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, it's that Deanna's still dressing like a space dancer. Oh, no, it's the ghost <laughs> Yeah, they kind of tried to, like, fix it by just making one of his arms just all black. but it, it, Which complements the outfit. Yeah, and it, like, and it, and it kind of makes it look like that's where Warlock was. You know, it's still kind of a similar thing, but... 
Eh, you know, it's it could have been a little bit more interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I'll, I I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does he have like? Is it like? It's so weird. Is it like cut off like where Warlock was? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So now you know, Jonah. I promised you X Men, and now I deliver you giant tree Sentai, and. That, for me, is an accomplishment. How do you feel about Cypher and his role between these two um, super Ents, I guess? As long as they maintain the course of Doug being a neutral party and just trying to connect and translate for Krakoa and now Arako, I will appreciate that. Something that I've personally noticed over reading certain Doug stories is that they do this thing where they keep hinting about like, Doug's actually evil and he's going to take over the world, but his language powers. And then he does good stuff, but then they'll go back like, Doug is maybe secretly evil because they'll say one shady thing or not and uh, that was the most staten island thing <laughs> ever said on air because they will say like one shady thing or not you're amazing so i appreciate doug the husband and doug the translator doing stuff i as long as they maintain as i said as long as they maintain the course I can appreciate Doug's character. The flip-flopping. I can even appreciate Doug as a villain. The flip-flopping and the will they, won't they with his, you know, uh, with evil is not, not, you know, enjoyable in my eyes. How did everybody feel about the very uniquely different season reflections of these two islands? That as they sit opposite each other, their colors are different. Their visuals are even very different. You know, Arako is a bit more spiky and a bit more aggressive looking, whereas Krakoa is leafy and soft. And I think even the personifications of these islands tell us a lot about what these islands have been through. I think we can see that they wear their battles on them. One thing that I like, I'm kind of just, I'm looking at it right now. I'm just noticing about like the way they look. There is definitely kind of like an opposite yet similarity to Krakow and Arako. So like I'm looking at it right now and to me, Krakow is very like spring and Arako is very fall, you know, kind of yeah, opposite really. on the color spectrum. And yeah, like you said, Nico, with like the rocks, you know, they're like a very war aggression versus more like Krakow has more trees and, and more vines on it. It's very peaceful. Don't let Gorgon near any of those rocks. <laughs> <laughs> like the color schemes, it is so telling to who they are. And like, just even like Arako itself looks more like she's been sentient for centuries, whereas Krakoa was dormant for a while. So Arako's more fully formed. Yeah, you know, looking at it, it does look like Arako has like a bigger, longer face. Like, that's a really interesting point. And you know, getting to the thing that all of us kind of couldn't get over, if you're going to give me four pages of nine-panel grid, please let it always be this fucking glorious and incredible. This council meeting was delicious. This council meeting was the most expensive thing on the menu, and they said I could have anything I wanted. I could not believe how much character-driven density Hickman was able to pack into so few pages and yet still carry the, the burden of exploring most of their characters. You know, his storm is perhaps in these pages a little underexplored, but, you know, there's something about gay couple Charles 
and Eric. Like, and I don't know that they're like, you know, gay bang, but they're like gay domesticated. A civil union. Yeah, they, they might not be romantic together, but they're definitely like a married couple. And like they make their decisions together and they go shopping together. And, you know, if like they're just they seem like they get along really well. They're gay, but they're still heterosexual. They're yeah. Al- they are almost like Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. <laughs> yes. yes. And like there's something I think is so tender about the display of their affection throughout this, the rest of this issue. And when I think about the amazing way that this nine panel grid captures the character essence of all of these characters, whether it's through Noto's stunning art that really did mean I didn't miss you. I would, you know, it's really tough for me. I would miss, I'll miss you always because I think he's just such a brilliant artist. But Noto gave me a soft landing and I really appreciated that. I, I just really thought this was a spectacular segment you know i'm all counsel all the time and i know you guys have already said that you did love it but if you guys each had one standout part of this you know four panel i'm sorry four page nine panel grid exchange what would it be for me it was definitely when emma said you know cypher says i've got a wife now and emma says and i'm sure you're both happy like that for me was the the best part of this nine panel grid exchange. Mine would be probably Magneto's or Mystique's. Magneto's just because I think he he's literally like the voice of the reader. You know, he's asking us like we were all thinking it. And then Mystique's because I was like, is she talking about destiny? Like, is that like was she yeah. throwing a little bit of shade? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's exactly how I read Mystique's. I'm like, oh, that's like my favorite one panel. Like her face, she's like, mm-hmm. I'm not happy. My two favorite besides the Mystique one which was everything i thought the sebastian shaw one was unironically funny and may your first mutant be an omega level mutant (laughs) that was cute it was like this is that's not every mutant has to be an omega level mutant sebastian you're not an omega level mutant (laughs) and you know i was gonna be like and maybe not everybody wants to have mutant baby oh no that's an agreement no that's the whole (laughs) yeah they want mutant baby so that doesn't die but my other favorite one was uh sinister being like i don't want to talk about it it was a bad time over there (laughs) i'm giving him a baby voice because he's pouting like a baby and i'm still surprised nobody has called him out be like sinister you still haven't told us what happened over there we're kind of shocked and we're kind of you know suspicious now talk about it and he'll be like no darling i'd rather not i kind of love like kate's random like just the look on her face and her random appearances in it i'm like oh yep that's my bisexual dating disaster right there Turning a little bit further to something I don't know how we all haven't gone bonkers banana pants over yet. Uh, in our recent poll, we asked both the X-Pack and X-Twitter who was the best new Iraqi character. And the X-Pack said in a dead heat, it was Bay and Iska. But then in a freak moment of I can't even explain it, somehow Iska was beaten and only Bay received the love from X-Twitter. So how ironic. I, how <laughs> ironic. Because here's the thing. I dude, I did vote for Iska. I'm like all about that Iska the unbeaten life. And I think that she is a spectacular character. And I've talked a lot about enemies lately on the show where you know characters have their opposites that you expect to see them opposite i expect wolverine to fight saber i expect in a normal universe xavier to be the opposite of magneto 
there's just certain things we expect. And by setting up Iska as somebody who can at least in an apocalypse or Mr. Sinister way go up against Charles and Eric together, that's significant. And I really like that that's giving her a significant dynamic within the new power structure right away. Because I did walk away from Ten of Swords thinking she was one of the standout parts. Oh my god, I loved that whole exchange. Like, I loved how, like, Eric's, like, the, like, when you've got, like, Eric and Charles, like, Eric's the one who's, like, the, you know, like, the the outgoing one, and Charles is back there with his little flower. He's like, I'm giving you a flower. Like, it's just, like, it furthers your, um, you know, civil union, some domestic partnership kind of thing for them, because it's, like, so obvious they've got these roles for each other. And Iska's like, ha, ha, ha. You guys are never going to, like, beat a Racco kind of, like, thing. Basically, they go to this island and they find out they're like, yeah, we're kind of assholes. Um, but, like, she's understanding it. Like, she, she gets what the, she gets what the, she gets their kind, she gets their character, right? She gets, like, oh, you guys are just trying to be nice. But guess what? That's not really the way we work. So, like, just go away and don't come back here. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of what she's saying. And it's, I don't know, it's just kind of, this, honestly, I was not expecting it to go in this direction. I, was almost convinced that they were going to be like happy family. So I like, Oh, I get it. You're like expecting like big, happy Okara. I could see Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and then like, they'll all be like one big happy family. They all beat the uh, excess swords together. So like now we're all good, but cause that was the point of it. Right. But now it's just kind of like, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that it was like, like what Magneto say. It was pointless. It was just, it threw a wrench in, you know, everything that's happened. You're just kind of like expecting it. And that's not the way it's going to go. We were all expecting, you know, good mutant uh, family values to uphold, but instead it turned into more real housewives of Araka and Krakoa. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is a show I would absolutely watch. Uh, they'd have to bring I, Maddie back. They would. I would subscribe to Krakoa TV Plus just to watch that show and the after show hosted by Jumbo Carnation. <gasps> oh my yes. God. Yes. Oh, Jumbo Carnation and Lasuna. Oh. <gasps> I want that I, show now. Marvel, we put it in the air. Now you have to make it next week. <laughs> oh my God, they'd call it Crackheads. <laughs> <laughs> I The moment with Iska was really refreshing because a lot of Krakoa was this very almost bubble-like ideology that everything was going to work out. They have this plan. They're doing everything new. They're doing everything different. So they're going to make everything work and they're going to do all these things. And to have this, you know, unbeatable woman pop that bubble and be like, um, actually hold your horses for a second. It was really nice for them to kind of have a wake-up call to understand we can't get complacent. We still have a lot of work to do even within their own communities and islands who refuse to touch one another again. They're going to get separate beds. You know, like, remember in the 1950s? I bet, like, everybody was there in the 1950s. <laughs> the separate beds. Uh, the first TV couple to share a bed in prime time was the Flintstones. The other thing that I really appreciated, basically, Iska being like, we're not so different, you and I, on the white pages talking about the Great Ring of Araco yes. and how it's mm -hmm. basically the exact same thing as the Quiet Council of four seats with roughly about three people there uh, for each one. And what I find most fascinating, besides all of the, you know, names, which I think the only two I recognize are Iska and Tarn. I'm surprised none of the other Apocalypse, no Apocalypse kids are on there unless they're the blacked out ones which in my opinion are probably the more interesting because I have to know who they are. 
This is this is basically Kate as the Red King all over again. Now, I actually have a secret dream. I'm kind of hoping that we don't realize it, but throwing people down the pit, spat them out in Araco at some point, and they are, you know, super aged and now are on this council. So we're going to have like a thousand-year-old saber tooth. Oh my god, yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. That's my secret hope. We actually know three of the the people on this. We know who Idol is. He was he was like briefly mentioned in one panel. Oh yeah. In X-Men 12. He is a precog. Mm-hmm. And we also Oh, that's interesting. He yeah. is a precog. Yeah. Yeah. And we know Redroot, so we do yeah. know somebody who's kind of like team adjacent. I don't want to be annoying, but guys, dawn, dusk, day, and night are so much cooler than spring. Like, I also lived for that. Like, that's what that's kind of what I was trying to say to allude to earlier. Is it they have like a pattern, like yeah, of of being seasons. This is like night and day. You know, like it's all you know. There there are correlations between the two islands, even if they are a little different. Kind of the opposite, but the same. Yeah, I'm a huge Romero zombie boom fan, and I'm like, oh my god, yes. <laughs> Now, if you read the Great Ring of Araco page, it says there is one measure of worth on Araco power. To that end, the Great Ring of Araco is made up of not just the most powerful, intelligent, and cunning of mutants. No mutant has ever sat on the Great Ring who is not an Omega-level mutant. It has never happened. It never will. Note, while the Great Ring only has nine recognized seats, there has always been rumor of three more seats apart from the ring itself. These night seats, both in makeup and purpose, remain a mystery. Which makes me think that the Great Ring of Araco is kind of their public face, and this secret set of seats is essentially the same thing as the Quiet Council. I was thinking of it more of like the night seat is kind of like their Professor Xavier Magneto Moira situation. Ooh. So I want to see how this all plays out now, because now we've got a lot of theories on the board, and we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot more questions from X of Swords than I kind of thought we'd have. I thought we'd have any answers. I didn't realize they would just be giving us more questions. (laughs) But now we have the greatest question of them all. Who are you voting for in the great X-Men election? You know, Gene being like, no, Charles. And like, we have to do this art. Like, Jean was the fucking star of this section, and I loved her. And I thought her and Scott is a unified front, but still, you know, I don't think this means that the Logan element of their relationship is over. That's not what this is about. And that they're going to create their own X team, and that the X, like, I kind of hope it's not its own book. I would just rather X-Men come out twice a month, to be honest. That's my personal opinion. I accept if that's not how it's going to be. Fine, fine, fine. But that is what I would prefer. But yeah, I love this idea of vote for the X-Men. You know, it's not a public poll, so they're not actually asking fans. They're asking the marketing department. (laughs) (laughs) And they're saying, it's going to look good on a t-shirt. So... I get that, but I am excited that this is the momentum or the propulsion to create the momentum that the X-Men needed to move into a new form post-Ten of Swords. (laughs) 
everybody. Nico here again. And, you know, sometimes amazing characters wind up in miniseries that just don't quite click. And that does seem to be the case for Power Pack in their most recent miniseries here on X's for Podcast. Now, the X Pack has a rule of being predominantly pretty positive about material because if you can't find something nice to say, just don't cover it. But in our continuing coverage of Power Pack, we see a lot of opportunity for the team to rise up to their former glory and to maybe even eclipse their most successful previous incarnations and we sort of want better for them than what this current miniseries is delivering now that's not to say that there isn't a lot to love with the team praising the art extensively but in this next segment kyle rod raven and robbie take a look at power pack second issue of the current miniseries and we hope you guys enjoy our coverage i am rodders you can find me at rod the on twitter and instagram with me, we have Kyle. Hi. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Also with us is Raven. Hey, I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. Uh, you can find me all over the place. Just type in Dame Red Bento. I'm all over the net. I'm especially on Twitter, doing my artwork and whatnot. So come on over, see me. We also have with us today, Robbie. Hey, everyone. I'm Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Hilaris on Twitter. <laughs> All right, and today we're talking about Power Pack, issue two. Writer is Ryan North. Artist is Nico Leon. The color artist is Rachel Rosenberg. And the letterer is VCs Travis Laneham. I believe I said all those names right. So, (laughs) (laughs) how first, how did everyone enjoy this second issue of Power Pack? Starting with, let's say, Kyle. Um, (laughs) oh, <laughs> well, I I think I ca- I called it uh within like the first four pages. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it was very predictable, unfortunately. It it just <laughs> I don't know. I I liked that the focus of the narration switched over to Alex's point of view and how we got to see him struggling with trying to come to terms with his time in that time oh the relative yeah the, yeah, the, the relative the, the time relativity thing and his relation with his siblings mm-hmm. the actual villain i was like oh yeah he's weird yeah. there's something <laughs> off about him I don't think he's really a hero. Oh, look. <laughs> what about you, Raven? I I had issues with the first issue. <laughs> and but I was like, okay, it's it's a kid's book. I'm just I'm going to try and, you know, roll with it and give it the benefit of the doubt and, you know, you know, I I don't expect anything like heavy or gritty or anything like that. But this was beyond predictable and it read like an old school product promotion yes comic book and i didn't appreciate that because it's treating not only is it is it disrespecting how much power pack could do as a comic book Uh it's kind of disrespecting the readers even young readers and treating them as if they don't have a thought process Uh and yeah just like the the quote-unquote mentor that comes in agent aether it feels like a product placement and it makes it really predictable when that situation changes so you're like oh 
yeah yeah it 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 to call it ham-handed would to be insulting ham (laughs) i'm gonna be brutal i am going to be absolutely brutal (laughs) just it 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 wasn't well done it really wasn't well done and i i did i did like the fact that they tried to switch it to the older brother because i was hoping that that would give it a little bit more uh, a little bit more weight a little bit more bite to it um but yeah they just they mm, yeah 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 that's that's all that's all i'm gonna say because i'm not picking up another issue of this what about what about you robbie (laughs) so i (laughs) i definitely agree with the intense levels of uh, predictability I did like the uh, perspective shift with Alex. I thought that that definitely did help the story. But I just... mm, Like, mm, okay, so I love the art. (laughs) The art is good. I do like the art. Yeah, The art's really nice, but... um, Well, parts of the art is nice. (laughs) And I do like the part where uh, Julie is able to kind of get them out of that situation. I thought that was very good. But just that whole, like, plan part or whatever of how they could, like, use their powers... To with build like, power plants and help people I, I, with honestly, free energy. I'm not a fan of that. Like that was honestly incredibly like boring to me. <laughs> Just yeah. that part of the issue. Every I feel like every other part of the issue i enjoyed it was just once they got to that i actually ended up putting the issue down and kind of playing video games for a bit and then i came back Um, yeah (laughs) but i will say though there was one really funny part when they were like looking for the mentor and going to different (laughs) places yes that was fun i really wish that we could get like full on like humor like that Mm -hmm. i wish that could have been like the full issue yeah yeah Yeah. that should have been the full issue yeah like Uh, that that had weight that had gravitas that had bite that had storyline that was interesting yo like that that frog thor sign that that was funny i you know that was i i I clap for that. Like, oh my god! I love that oh. the Asgardians have had so many people coming up to them and asking about Frog Thor that they had to put up a sign. Oh my god! Sif is just like, I am so tired of all this. I just, like, this is gonna make me quit being the seer now. I'm just, I'm tired. <laughs> oh my god! That was coming, or or when they try and go and uh, talk to Banner. And oh, yeah. Like, yeah, he's not here, and he was a terrible mentor. You don't want him as your mentor. Oh, Hulk smash feelings. Deadpool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would go to Deadpool as a mentor, first of all. Like, no. And they realized that was a bad idea. But oh, still, yeah, like in the first battle, they're like, oh, no. Like, no, this, no. Was, this was not good. And, um, and even Deadpool recognized that he'd be a terrible mentor. <laughs> I mean, Deadpool is crazy, but he's smart. He knows. He right? knows that he's not good, okay? He's like, I kill people. Like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Want to get some tacos? <laughs> <laughs> I would say I... Like, I, I enjoyed the first issue. Like, I remember when me and yeah. Raven first, 
you know, talked about the when when we predicted that it was gonna mm-hmm. shift to the older like another sibling, the second issue. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they did that. Uh, I did like the perspective of the younger sibling in the first issue, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, we're gonna get the perspective of another sibling. It's gonna be like the art might be even a little different. Like it's gonna be a whole different perspective. Like I thought that was gonna be the thing. Like it's gonna be it's gonna show how little kiddish she was thinking in the first one, and then mm-hmm. in the second one, we're gonna see maybe one of the older siblings and see how like adult they're thinking how adult the situation actually is mm-hmm. we didn't get that <laughs> so maybe i'm biased because i haven't really read any i haven't read really anything of power pack mm-hmm. like i know power pack is a beloved um kid team mm-hmm. um i know they've been on the future the ff team before two of the older ones with the fantastic mm-hmm. four and I know they're beloved characters, but I don't feel like, like, like y'all have all said, I feel like this, especially the second issue is doing a disservice to the team. Yeah. It's not showing them being basically smart at all, except for Julia in that one moment. Oh, it feels like they made her, I know it's going to sound weird. It feels like they made her too smart. It feels like they were trying to cram in as many big words and, and complex sentences to make her seem smart. Mm-hmm. When it was just, it was a bunch of double speak that she was using to, to, oh my God, cradle. Oh, for sake. Oh, don't even get me started on them. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Cradle, yeah. Cradle has been written pretty well, and not in this book, but and pretty yeah. well in in the other books like Outlaw and and Miss Marvel and, Sp- and Spider Man Miles Morales. Like mm-hmm. the 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 subtleties of comparing it to you know police brutality and, and you know the real life society <laughs> and all that. Yeah. Like other writers have really connected that well in the other books. Yeah. Um, it might be because. No, no, Tino Shave, but it might be because the the writers were people of color that wrote those other books. But yeah, I I don't like because isn't Julia isn't she basically a college student? Because yeah, yeah, she is. She, she dated and she the dated yeah, yeah, she, she dated Nico. Carolina. Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So she should be smart, and they're writing her you know smart ish in this, but then she they're also writing her very immature. Yeah, and just, I yeah. don't oh, I don't understand course. how why they're writing both. The, I understand the younger siblings writing them immature, mm-hmm. but I don't understand writing the older ones that are in college and been in outer space and done all these missions and everything. Mm-hmm. So childish. Yeah. And I get that this maybe is supposed to be, you know, a kid's book, but so mm-hmm. are other kids' books. Like, so is basically Strange Academy that yeah. we talked about in the past is a ki- quote-unquote a kid's book, and they're written immaturely, oh, but in a, in a smarter <laughs> sense, in a more yeah. intelligent sense. They're, yeah, they don't seem as naive as the power yeah. pack does and power mm-hmm. pack has been like a superhero group for a long time so why yes. are they yeah. just naive <laughs> hey everybody a quick bit of history for our new listeners in case you are unfamiliar with power pack power pack first debuted in 1984 in august created by louise simonson and june brigman now the characters alex julie jack katie were siblings who gained superpowers through a dying alien named Whitey, and it involved the chameleon race and super fantastic stories. And as a matter of fact, Power Pack has been launched and relaunched like a dozen times. You can get most of the earliest classic stories currently in two omnibus editions. The first omnibus edition was released in March of 2020, with the second one coming out in June of 2021. The first one contains Power Pack 1 through 36, Uncanny X-Men 195 and 205, 
Thor 363, X-Factor Annual 2, Marvel Graphic Novel Power Pack and Cloak and Dagger, and material from Strange Tales 13 and 14, while the next bit is Power Pack 37 through 62, plus another handful of appearances, crossovers, and specials from the next 20 years of Power Pack history. Now, the team has been launched and relaunched a number of times, and, you know, they're a kind of a creature that they're always trying to get right. We saw Power Pack come back in a f- series of one-shots featuring themselves and the rest of the Marvel Universe. There were also appearances by the team in various titles, such as Runaways. One of the loners was an older version of one of the Power Pack kids. Now, the ages of the Power Pack kind of vary, slide. There's a little bit of difficulty with figuring out exactly how old they are, but that's kind of the price you pay for being a kid in the Marvel Universe. You can grow up once, and then you kind of get stuck in the past unless that run really takes. So this is Marvel's latest attempt at bringing back Power Pack, inevitably to try and get it on D-plus or something like that, right? So hopefully you guys have a chance to check out some of the classic Power Pack outside of just this miniseries. Yeah, I'm like, they're good enough to plan out actually really brilliant integral strategies. And yet they play them like they are first day on the job, you know, idiot children. Yeah. And like that. No, they've been doing this for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. That's why I think I would like this more if it was a new superhero group and they were just starting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Yeah. they have they have omnibuses of this group. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. I, I think. It also, maybe if this wasn't part of the whole outlawed thing, mm-hmm. if they were yeah. just able to do their thing and not have to worry about all the new restrictions, I think that they'd be able to shine. But mm-hmm. it here, it just feels like they're getting shoved into this storyline and not being mm-hmm. connected with any of the other characters that are affected yeah. by outlaws. Mm-hmm. Outlawed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like high school book versus this feels like a, a kiddie book, like yeah. kindergarten. Yeah. I, if they were doing, if they, since they're doing outlaw in this, I would have loved it for it to touch on, you know, this, this group of, you know, more, more or less this group of superheroes, kid superheroes that haven't really had that much adversity on them that are also Mm -hmm. you know more privileged in their way of living and they're also Mm -hmm. a group of you know white youths i would have liked that to play (laughs) all all of that to play into the outlawed event of their book like and and none of that is touched on (laughs) yeah no they seem to be completely mystified and out of the loop as to what kamala's law is and it's like how 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 just how you're like like i understand the, you have a TV. You watch yeah. the news with your parents. Like, how do you not know about Kamala's law? How do you, you know? And yeah. oh my God, that whole thing where they're like, you can either get a mentor or we can slap you in cuffs right now. Like, I'm sorry, what? You're putting handcuffs on children without trying to find out who their parents are first? Yeah, this, this, what? Out, like, Outlaw does that in the other books, but they do it not in this wacky kind of yeah. way. You know, they don't do it like, oh, you need to find a mentor. Like, no, that's none of none of that <laughs> is mentioned in it. They're like, you need to find a mentor right now or we're going to handcuff you. Like, that's, I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, that's one of the laws, but they, it's not to that extent. I, like, I, I haven't seen that in any of the outlaw books except for this one. Basically. Yeah. So it doesn't really flow with it right. And yeah, and I, I understand what you're saying with the, um with not understanding Kamala's law. Like, I get the older two not understanding it because they were in, in space. So, yeah, right. 
cool. They they just came back. But the mm-hmm. younger two, they're you know they're established younger superheroes. They should keep up mm-hmm. with you know with the news and everything, right? At least for the most yeah. part. And they know nothing about it. Yeah, I mean, how else are you going to find out when villains are attacking somewhere? Like you'd be watching the news or listening to the radio or something, which means you would have heard coverage at some point about Kamala's law being signed in, and you know, hey, now children superheroes need a mentor or something. You'd, you'd see it all over the place. Yeah. Advertise all over the place, like, and it's just very odd that they don't know because, like, so many, like, like so many kids their age, they would like be on TikTok and they would find mm-hmm. out all about it through there or Twitter yeah. or Instagram. And oh, speaking of that, this is like the perfect book to like. Why aren't we seeing any of them on TikTok or something like that? Like, if you want, if you want to, like, put in youth, 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 um, euphemisms. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but it came. Out. I, was, I, was, I was trying to find a different word, but I was like, "Nope, there's nothing else." You mean like um, an analog? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. But, like, right. why? Why aren't they seen as the only way we're seeing them as children is being is them being immature? But that's mm-hmm. there, there's other ways to view them as children. Like if mm-hmm. if you look back at the Juggernaut solo series, you see Gisdell yeah. on her phone, you know, vlogging everything and with her U Rocks channel. <laughs> yeah, like and and using all this like you know maybe a little bit outdated lingo now, but yeah. still like you, they're still like talking as kids and but not mm-hmm. being dumb. They're still being children but still intelligent yeah and i'm like i don't want to just bag on this book but we're not getting that and it's it's making me sad because i was like oh power pack i've never read them i'm excited to read them and now like you know what have been great if instead of like drawings in the beginning of the issue we could have had like like panels of them trying to like badly set up a tiktok right oh yeah <laughs> yeah that would oh be good See, been of the times <laughs> yeah <laughs> Because I mean, the the when the first episode came out, and yeah, they had the the rough drawings at the front. I was like, oh okay. Yeah. But when they brought it to the second one as well, I'm like, really? Yeah. That was really the younger girl's perspective, right? But now, yeah. it's... yes. Because I yeah. thought that I thought that in the first issue, it was supposed to be used as her telling her parents that they were superheroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically and then, getting the audience caught up on yeah. on everything. Yeah. yeah, and then this it it doesn't really fit into the whole story. It was just uh, there as a refresher. Yeah, and it it, it was very flat. It was very flat. yeah. I, but yeah, it's like they have they have all this great analysis technology and apps and things that they can use like the urox channels they could have an uh, an analog to tiktok and analog to twitter they could have all these things that have been established in other books anyways but they're they're playing it like they're completely outside of any of the other books like they have zero knowledge and it's just like what are you doing and yeah they had a couple of pages where they had some really good solid uh storyline and paneling like when they were looking for the mentor but other times it was just this really ham-handed captain planet-esque you know like (laughs) almost in in infomercial slash product placement for children type 
book and it's like it felt like it kept going in all these different directions and not making like a solid cohesive book which was really disappointing because it had so much potential Mm. yeah i would love for these characters to leave this group to Mm -hmm. not to just like disband power pack and then just Mm -hmm. join the champions also, a lot of their power sets could go well with other books that are with the young heroes. They mm-hmm. can work well oh, with other young heroes. So yeah. I, they're not being, like, sorry to say for the people involved in this book, like, they're st- like the art is great, but they, I don't feel like these characters are being utilized in the best way that they can. Mm-hmm. So ho- I think the end game is for them to probably be in Champions. I would love that because then we get more, you know, young heroes interacting with each other. At least give this book to somebody who appreciates the character because yeah. i think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day this person appreciates frog thor and banner and iron man and deadpool because those that's where it seemed like they put a ton of work into mm-hmm. was those mentor panels yeah. with these adult heroes that seemed really appreciated but like the rest of it didn't didn't feel like it got that love yeah also there um no one knowing who they are even though they're showing their faces doesn't make sense to me oh my like, God. Are they, what are they <laughs> superman and clark kent like I don't, oh I don't my God. Not even wearing glasses. Yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, like like literally faces fully out there. Their hair doesn't even change. I'm like, girl, you are not Clark Kent. There like, is no mass parents... hypnosis. Like, no. Right? How do your parents not see you on the news and be like, hey, those are my kids? That or those those parents don't want those kids and they're just going, oh God, come on, come on, come. Nope. Crap, they're coming home. Okay, play dumb again. Like, right. <laughs> it honestly feels like that. That's how they're running this shit. <laughs> I would love if that was if that. That is that's a thing I would love that. That would probably make me like like this plot a lot better if the parents yeah. are just like playing dumb. Right. <laughs> I mean they're irresponsible parents because they're just letting the kids <laughs> go out. But you know, it hey, it makes for a good plot, I feel like. <laughs> I like I will say a positive for this book the art I I I love because I feel like it has a good mixture of you know hard superhero tones but also adolescence and like soft tones mixed with it and even makes the um the segment with you know Asgard and Deadpool and all that still fit the same tone but also still look you know superheroic in a way like Mm -hmm. it mixes the two together and I think in a good way so I, I do like that about this book yeah yeah and i i absolutely love the coloring in the book Mm, yes it's 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 just so vibrant and the color makes the book the color does make the book so yeah yeah i i you know we if i i'm happy when you know a book you don't really like but hey the art is magnificent that at least that makes me happy you know we Mm -hmm. love the art it makes it more enjoyable to look at everybody nico here one last time and it's hard to imagine that the event ten of swords is already over for like a month now in accordance we had nathan pull together some questions and pose them to jonah josh and maddie to see what they thought about x of swords all said and done one month out it was a crazy roller coaster ride lasting 22 issues plus some additional tie-ins and between the misleads the changes in tones and the pacing development the event definitely left everybody with a lot to talk about we hope you guys enjoy ten of swords a month later welcome everybody to x's for podcast i'm nathan you can find me online at dazzler aoa at twitter and instagram 
And I'm Josh. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. Hey guys, it's Maddie, and as always, you can find me on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike, well, nobody really <laughs> died. Like only two people died, and they're not even that important. So does anybody really die? Uh, are they even dead even yeah so we're about a month out from the ten of swords event so we're taking a look back so this was the first major x crossover event in years and absolutely the first major event in the hox pox docs era do we remember before we start covering the event do we remember where we were in the our excitement levels going into this event i know i was like oh my god it's gonna be amazing like this is going to be like the most fantastic things the x-men have swords where were you guys at i had a emotionally detached level of excitement i like intellectually knew like i had faith in teeny and hickman and the whole x slack that whatever they did i was going to enjoy the hell out of it but the i guess the the tarot sense and leaning heavily into excalibur which on first read through through the the first year of docs did not really excite me and do it for me i appreciated it a lot more reading the whole thing again second read through once i had all of the pre-x of swords issues but it didn't really like emotionally charge me up but i knew i was in for something good i was exceptionally excited when we got the handbook way back when and i'm yeah. looking through it now and i wanted to discuss before we jump into our thoughts on Ten of Swords one month out. I wanted to bring up the handbook because there were a lot of red herrings in here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for every Apocalypse and Captain Britain and Cable that were mentioned, you know, or Gorgon, rather, that were mentioned, we get Brew, who was nowhere to be found in the story. We get Gloriana, who was nowhere to be found in the story and is getting shafted, frankly, in, in the Dawn of X series. She's on all covers and no stories. Yes. And we had Moira. Moira could not have been further removed from the story. You know, so I think I think personally, I was a little confused when I when I found what we were finally getting. I was like, wait a minute, but this is I read so much handbook. <laughs> that was a big misdirect. That was a huge misdirect. I think obviously Gloriana. I think she factors more into the history of Otherworld leading up into it, and it may be leading into the Reign of X era because at least in this first Excalibur issue, she seems to have a pretty prominent role. But Brew, I'm wondering what's going on with that. The Moira, lack of Moira is one of my few disappointments with this in hindsight because I am, even knowing how the story concludes now, like with everything we saw from House of X issue 2, which is probably still my favorite issue that we've gotten in this whole era, um, the fact that we did not get a single Moira apocalypse moment, the fact that we didn't get any allusion to Moira having lived through this or Moira's relationship with the original horseman from Life 9, like none of that, that it all, like the only Moira bit we got was just like a shocked look on her face when there was the, the feedback in the Cerebro helmets is still a little disappointing because she is maybe the ultimate major player in the long story here and and it didn't factor in at all in our first big crossover yeah that was crazy everybody was a buzz with the uh one panel appearance of moira they're like oh my god we're gonna finally deal with moira and we didn't 
I was I, I would like to echo that sentiment because uh, Moira X was probably the biggest shock to me, and I was super excited to see what role is she going to play. And then she hasn't done anything. Sword has been was my first major cross X over. It was because I started reading basically at the start of Dawn of X for when new stuff, and I was really excited because I was like, okay, what does that mean? A giant crossover? What does that What does that entail? Because I'd never been a part of one, and I was kind of always left out. And I was always like the kid, just like standing in the back, being like, yeah, I mean, I read uh, Contest of Champions. <laughs> uh, and Secret Wars. Actually, no, I didn't read Contest of Champions. I only read Secret. I only read the first Secret Wars. <laughs> I would like um, Contest of Champions. I'm sorry if you read that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do enjoy that game. But I was. I had a. There was a, there was a sort of hesitation because not knowing what that entails, I didn't know how much I was going to enjoy it. There were still a bunch of elements when it was leading up to it and hints and what the inf- little information that we did have that did excite me, whether it was the involving of tarot, Opa Luna Saturnine, this like cool panel of people with swords. I was like, yeah, like this is going to be great and cool. But it was also just a little bit of trepidation because it's going to soak up a lot of time and... To me, if you're going to capitalize and dominate a story for so many weeks and so many issues, it has to be, in my eyes, extremely worth it. You have to really deliver me a story where I can say, okay, it was worth putting everything else on hold to read this. And and speaking of putting things on hold to read, I... I can't help but think back to all of the data pages that we got for the, I almost called them the seven capital cities of heaven because I'm obsessed with Matt Fraction's Iron Fist run, but the different, the different uh, subsections of Otherworld, you know, the Crooked Market and uh, Dryador for every data page that we got there. And granted, they were used as backdrops in a fraction of the story. But I feel like for as removed as those moments made the pacing of each individual issue that they appeared in, there wasn't much reason for them outside of maybe the crooked market. So I want to talk about those. Those are one of the things in my notes I want to talk about a little as well is the use of the data pages. Um, And so a lot of this is hindsight. Having digested the whole thing, what do we understand or what are our feelings about it more? I do think that having all those extra data pages afforded them the ability to move faster, which, I mean, I know that we have mixed feelings on, you know, the speed that the actual contest moved, but they did not have to go in and explain what is this crazy place, where are we, what are we doing, because they dedicated, you know, 10 full pages of text to it over, you know, the first half of X of Swords. But the data pages were also something that stood out to me. I I think a big part of my final digested feelings on X of Swords, you know, I was able to kind of take a slightly different perspective on it after listening to Jordan D. White's kind of breakdown, like his retrospect. You know, he was on some podcasts uh, after X of Swords finished where he could talk about here's what we were doing in the process. And one of the things he said was that, you know, this was intended to be consumed in whole. Like it wasn't supposed to be that like there are these twists or shocks or cliffhangers, you know, based on which issues were coming out weekly that like they really wanted the whole thing consumed as one. And I do think it will read a lot better maybe five years down the line. Like, I think when you, someone picking this up for the first time in, you know, 2027, assuming that we haven't, you know, burnt the whole world down by then. This is that one with all the crazy other world stuff. 
like, ooh, cool. And it wouldn't feel like, you know, I, I refer to it as the, you know, um, selling us Highlander and giving us Monty Python. It wouldn't feel like a bait and switch at all for them. And, you know, depending on what some of these characters do moving forward, it could even be like, oh, oh, like, this is the first time we got Bay. remember? Like, this is back before she even killed Magneto. Like, this is, like, early Bay. Like, early Bay. I think there's going to be some really cool things with this later, but I don't believe for a second that they weren't taking into account how we consume this because they use these data pages so meticulously. Like this line has used these data pages to act as almost like commercial breaks to break up scenes the way television episodes do. Like they have very specifically used these to pace and guide emotion. And when you use specific placements like that, I I can't believe that you didn't know that, oh, well, you know, if we do the first five weeks of this selling sword story and we put cliffhangers at these points that like, you know, people won't, you know, be completely ramped up for, you know, a full on, you know, 10 V 10 sword battle. So I, I still don't like, I don't buy that bit at all. I, I still think that that's one of my, the pacing and the act structures is one of my few disappointments of this story. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to believe that that's the intention when the, just the way the release schedule fell, like usually if there were three issues in a week, it, it felt like those three issues pretty well tied together and set up the cliffhanger for the next week. So I kind of get what you're saying on that, definitely. Did anybody have any experience with Otherworld in the past? Like, Josh, I know you're a big 90s fan. Did you read any of the Excalibur um, during that period or... I have. It's one that I have planned. I have not read it all in order. Like, I haven't done the full, like, start at one and read through to 125. But I've read the majority of it in, you know, like, 10 to 20 issue bursts. And, yeah, anytime the Captain Britain Corps or Saturn 9 or the various Saturn 9s from different dimensions came in, it was always a special story. That Excalibur run, particularly when Davis and Claremont were on it, did a really good job of making um, any of the ties to the old Captain Britain stuff feel really special. If there was a bring-in of Roma, if there was uh, an issue where Betsy came in, tying her relationship with Brian and Megan, those were always special, fun issues that they're the ones that tend to stand out as well. Oh, gosh, yeah. No, for me, like, my comic collecting experience started, like, the first two issues I read were Excalibur 42 and Uncanny X-Men 281. So, like... Excalibur was like getting right into that big Otherworld saga that they were going through. Now, Jonah and Maddie, I know through Nico, through Osmosis, you guys probably have some exposure to Otherworld. So what was your feelings on the Otherworld that was presented, which was a very different Otherworld than what we'd seen before, and the Otherworld of old? You know, I... I have not been shy about expressing the fact that my first foray into comics was just consuming art and leaving the story behind in the dust, you know? So in that case, I know I'm positive that I have inherited books where Otherworld has been a prominent locale, you know? But that said, it isn't until Excal in the Dawn of X era that I really read anything that took place in Otherworld or any location in Otherworld that I was like, all right, this makes sense. It was the same way that when X-Factor went back to the Mojoverse, I was like, this is vaguely familiar, but why? I couldn't tell you why, you know? So in that case, this all felt a little bit new to me, which was great, you know? I, I feel like if I didn't have any exposure to Otherworld before, 
after getting the history of the mutants of Morocco three different times and three different issues throughout this run, going back and reading any other other world, I would be like, okay, but what about a month? You know, like I feel like this was this set up a very definitive side of other world that hadn't existed before, you know, vis a vis Morocco and a month. And in that case, it would be difficult for me to go back and reread another story in which Otherworld was the location and not imagine the events of Ten of Swords, because that was my first real exposure. Uh, Ten of Swords was also my first real exposure, and I, you know, lovingly gaze at Nico's tribute to Excalibur and one of his uh, hanged up, you know, memorials to the different comics that he loves and has influenced him. I really didn't know a lot about Otherworld. I had a vague idea from hearing about what the original Excalibur run was about, what Captain Britain does, all these different things. But jumping into it, I was really fascinated with the exploration of the different aspects of it because I. I imagine a lot of the other world stories took place in or around Avalon and that or the Starlight Citadel and stuff like that where locations where you'd be familiar with but having them you know deep dive into other areas and bring up characters that I know like Mad Jim Jasper is running his own crooked market that's its own special place I had this idea and I know that's something that we talked about leading up to it especially when those pages were revealed talking about those different sectors I was super excited to have a more in-depth look at everything as opposed to them kind of just being a background that they could use to be like we technically went to another place and it's like i mean technically sure by the definition of it but did you really go there because what what made it special so i was excited when this was going to take place in other world but i was also you know nervous for a new location but i think the most interesting thing that came out and what made the stakes feel real was the death of rock slide and mutants that die in other world don't come back the same now that's that's a that's a very good point. How now that we have gotten to some of the aftermath of it, how do you guys all feel about Rockslide primarily seeming like the only one who is affected in the same way by the resurrection protocols? Gorgon's back, right? And we know we've gotten some clues that he's different than he was before. And I know in Excalibur we're addressing the issue with uh, Captain Betsy, but it seems like Rockslide was like the sole like victim. Oh, there is so much more to still learn about this, too, because, you know, like we thought it for a while through X of Swords, it seemed like they were explaining that Rockslide was like an AU version of Rockslide, like he was reborn as like Rockslide from a different universe. But now from X Factor, we're seeing that he's like baby Rockslide, <laughs> like like he's like a newborn baby Rockslide in a big Rockslide body. And so... Is that just special for him? Like, is there a baby Gorgon in a Gorgon body running around? Or is it a you Gorgon? Or like, like, I really want to see, like, they've just alluded to and hinted about Gorgon. I really want to see, like, it needs, like, triangulation. Like, I need two to three different characters who've been, like, Otherworld resurrected so I can see the differences and get a feel for, like, what type of actual consequences or ramifications this is to those deaths. Baby's first rock slide. I Aww. would. I'm still hoping that Gorgon definitely wants to. Oh, well, actually, no. I was about to say he. I hope he fucks rock. But if rock slides a baby, <laughs> we don't do that. And we don't put that anywhere near one another. Oh, can that be our yeah, new official X's for podcast ship? Gorgon and rock slide. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna fuck that rock. When uh, rock slide is mature enough to actually say sentences without it being like otherworld distorted, then yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, 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 True. 
um i i have to agree with you josh that it's it's a rock slides death was made very interesting and different especially because we saw the resurrection of nanny and orphan maker and they're not so much different fully like i still feel like they're the same characters with like minor adjustments to make them a little more interesting even though i found nanny to be absolutely hysterical in her humpty dumpty suit i do want to know why nanny and orphan maker came across as the best way i can describe it as same but different where rockslide feels like a complete different iteration oh oh, oh, let's talk about that so well we have two different things here we have other world deaths and we have a menthi deaths right so if you die in other world you come back a scrambled egg with no past if you die on a menth, you come back as like you're an amped up version of yourself on steroids. And um, that is so intriguing because like, can we place bets on who's the first character that's going to try to travel to a menth just to die so that way they can come back as an amped up version of themselves on steroids? Mira, who has, who I would love to. Who has the smallest, uh, the smallest penis and thinks that this is the best way for them to, you know, get that big dick <laughs> energy? Who, who's like, Fabian who, Cortez. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Cortez, Cortez might just be the winner on that one. He he needs his power to be he's, uh, a little he's, bit more he's, dick. Sorry, he's so upset that Magneto shafted him in the first issue of Sword that he's like, no, I have to come back better. Yes, uh, he's like Peepers. He loves Peepers more than me. I love Peepers more than him. Right. Uh, yeah. if, I, if I had to throw my hat into a ring for a likely candidate, I don't know how likely. I think Quentin Quire would, because I think at this point he's too annoyed at dying too often that he'd be like, I, I, this can't happen. I'm Quentin Quire. This is not supposed to happen. I'm the main character. I need, I need to be Quentin Quire was one of my first thoughts. Quentin Quire, like when he realizes that none of the cuckoos want him because they all want C- Cable, absolutely Ooh. like going on a journey to a menth to come back and try to get him some cuckoos. I, I could say. <laughs> Oh my god, this is basically going to be the Krakoan version of the Stefan or Kel arc of Family Matters. <laughs> Wait, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't Quentin Quire have and, uh, uh, Gwenpool? Isn't he, aren't they together now? He, I mean, does Gwenpool really care that much, though? She has her white and, space, it's fine. And he tries to pretend that didn't happen, like... Like he gets him, like he gets a little embarrassed and hopes that like no one heard her when she says that like they used to be together. Like he's specifically drawn like when they were on panel, like looking around and make sure no one else is paying attention. You know that's got <laughs> that. How does that make Quinfield feel? Like Quentin Choir of all people is sitting there trying to deny. Oh wait, that never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> she probably like turns to the pen and goes, "Guys, you know this happens." And Quentin goes, "Who are you talking to?" And she's like, "The readers, obviously." <laughs> Quentin, for as smart as you are, you're very dumb. And I just want to see someone call Quentin dumb. <laughs> <laughs> piggybacking piggybacking off of his experience with Gwenpool I kind of hope some of that breaking the fourth wall has rubbed off on Quentin like the next time he inexplicably dies in X-Force I want him to say but I'm supposed to be the Phoenix oh poor Quentin yeah and I hope everyone this isn't how it happens we've seen the future all right so this issue I mean this event I'm sorry it was 22 issues long now we know there's been a lot of criticism about the pacing of events though during that there were some standout moments and some moments that 
we probably could have done without. I know my standout moment would have had to have been the Marauders issue where Vita Ayala has Storm get the sword from Wakanda and that beautifully complex relationship with Storm and Ramona and Shuri and even with Black Panther himself. What about you guys? What would be your standout moments from the event? For me, I think it's the New Mutants issue with Ileana trying to train Doug. And it's a very specific issue because when the sword bearers were announced, part of me was hoping that it would be characters. It's a mix of characters that make sense and characters that would be surprises. And I think Cypher falls in that surprise category because why would you ever pick Doug? Doug doesn't have any fighting capabilities. Doug doesn't have any fighting abilities with his mutant powers. He's just able to translate any language. So having Doug be chosen, I was really interested in how how is he going to fit into everything? What were they going to do to Doug to either train him in the very short amount of time that they had or how, what, what can he do? He's kind of the only one who can't do anything without his warlock buddy self-friend and I was really fascinated and really hopeful that there would be a really big payout to including Doug. So that first issue really made, I think, really made me excited to see, alright, we got someone who's not really a sword, who's not a sword wielder or doesn't even have a lot of fighting experience compared to everybody else there. What can he do? Yeah, it gave a really great moment, too, that I loved um, at the end of the Cable issue, that first Cable issue, where Cable's like, oh, hey, Doug, I didn't know you were a sword fighter. <laughs> He's like, I'm not. Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> and, and that also paid off so much well later on because, you know, you got to see there hadn't, like, there's not a long-running kid Cable-Doug dynamic, but, like, then you, it was just enough so that way, when Cable was trying to be too precise and cared too much about Doug seeing him kill Bay, that it messed up that whole fight for him. Like, it helped you buy into it and give you a little more there. Like, I liked that. Standout moments for me, though, I had three. The Joshua Cassara art, uh, the whole battle between Wolverine yeah. and Summoner was phenomenal for me. One that I, I go back and just, like, still want to flip through the pages and just like get lost in gorgon's battle near the end where gorgon evened up the score was absolute standout and then apocalypse putting on the helm like those are the three moments to me that i think i will continue to go back and remember and just be like those were the epic moments of this this crossover for me i would say for me and i said it during our coverage of either the recap of the end of Ten of Swords or the issue of Marauders itself, but the, or at least I believe it to be Marauders, it could very well have been uh, Stasis. The storm dancing with death scene was my top, and I think it's because I was so hyped from Vita Ayala's interpretation of storm in the previous issue of Marauders as a part of this crossover was so dynamic that seeing her have a moment to shine with death was really beautiful. And then she had her moment with the uh, flirty drinking game with Wolverine later on. There was a lot of decent showcasing of Storm, uh, the height of which being Vita, uh, Vita's interpretation and the dance with death. And I think it was a good break for me from what otherwise felt like the Betsy Braddock Wolverine story. But if I had to choose something new, if I had to put that all by the wayside, I would say the issue of Excalibur with Betsy and Brian duping Saturnine into her wielding the Twilight Sword. That was probably my favorite reread. That was the one that, that and maybe because of how removed it felt from 
the first act of Ten of Swords, the collection of swords, this was the only one with the knowledge, with the forethought of knowing how the swords are meant to just be keys for competition, not for an actual sword, you know, contest of arms. I feel like that was the issue that read the best to me as a standalone. So with the event being 22 issues, so we've talked about some standout moments that we had. Were there any moments that you would have rather seen taken out of the event? I know me personally, as fun as the story was, I don't think Hellions added anything of benefit to the books. Even though it was such a fun story, I don't think it really added to the story. I know we had talked about in the first part, uh, or during it, that Hellions felt like it should be a tie-in. You know, like when you have the main story ones and then you have kind of tie-ins during crossovers but it's also one where if this was a mini series or a maxi series as opposed to occurring from book to book Hellions, I think, would have played a lot better as just being like a C-plot thread running through the background, like going on in the background of this whole story. If it was, you know, you got like one or two scenes progressing that plot issue by issue, as opposed to it just being like, and now a break from the story with all the real consequences to this one with Nanny and Orphan Maker. Although Hellions was enjoyable as all get out, the way it had to be sandwiched in was a little awkward. And then the only other thing I would take out, like, probably if I would make this 21 issues instead of 22, like, I just really felt that uh, Ben Percy should have been able to write that Wolverine two-parter early on in one issue. Like, that was one issue stretched out into two. It was the only place where the story really felt decompressed like that. You know, I would say I I have to agree. I think that the redistribution of the plot of Hellions throughout this book could have made for a very interesting C-plot. But that said, I would say in grading this, there are two books that I'm going to omit. I'm going to omit Hellions because it is the one. If everybody's familiar with the Don Bluth film Anastasia, watch it again and the Rasputin plot lifts right out. Even in the very beginning, even when it's set up, Rasputin isn't who takes down the Romanov family. It is a sociopolitical uprising that forces them from their home. That said, Hellions is the Rasputin to Ten of Swords for me. It had no direct stake in the matter. It was clearly a red herring and a fool's errand. I would say, aside from that, the other book that I would choose to omit is Cable, because the use of the peak for the Viscora is the... Uh, very, very convenient fix that saves the day, so I can't completely discount that. If I had one book to choose, it would be two because I'm complicating things greatly here. I would say X-Force and Wolverine could have been a single issue. I think that, especially then for how much focus was placed on Wolverine later in the story, in the second and third acts, I could have done for one single issue of the Muramasa Blade. For me, I, I don't think I have anything else I can say other than Hellions. It was an issue that fell outside of the narrative. I don't really think needed to be done. It was a plan that I, I think everybody called was not going to work from the beginning. No matter how deceitful and playfully charming that Sinister can be, there was no way that something like that was going to turn up well. So that whole narrative, that, that whole side quest really felt so far removed that I don't think needed to be there. 
I think maybe if we it was revealed later, uh, something else could have been there. I also think like a huge old chunk of those battles probably could have been removed if you weren't going to give us the very standard one on one or one v two, you know, sword fights, and you were going to create these creative, interesting competitions. I would have rather there been something a little bit more dedicated to them, but having them be panels and like flashbacks of what happened, only to then just give us a whole transcript and a um one of the white pages dedicated to it it feels like to me that was missed opportunity for other important story elements if you weren't going to dive deep about kind of piggybacking off of something you're saying um there was a lot of talk online about the actual contests themselves derailing the overall feel of the event. Um, I know for me, when I was going in week to week, I, I felt like, well, this is not what we were promised at all. Um, but looking back on it now, I can actually see, for me, how it works to not have everything be a sword-based event and how they actually foreshadowed a lot of this in the earlier parts of the story. Um, looking back on it now, what do you think of the absurdity of some of the events? I really don't actually mind that not everything was an actual sword fight. I think that really made for a very interesting and creative idea to this idea of a battle and this winning of saving the Earth or the, the prize of saving the Earth or or destroying the earth, whatever your side chose. My biggest problem came from the convoluted rules that Saturnine set up around them, where basically Krakoa was losing all the way until the end, until she decided every one of those kills at Gal, uh, not Gollum, that Gorgon got counts as one. So they all, everybody's tied up now. It, a lot of this derailment, I think, came from Saturnine herself with this weird rules that she just made up to kind of punish the mutants. I don't fully understand why, if you're going to make things creative and not standard, did you make them wacky and not like it wasn't as fun to me if they were actual rule uh, like an actual competition that made sense where in reality we got saturnine makes the rules it's through the rules she has money yeah Basically, uh, I, the seto kaiba of x verse i also find it like and especially like looking back on it and rereading it like the amenthes the arakans were so their emotions and their feel toward the Krakoans, like they looked down on them like these are not great warriors like we'll slaughter them mercilessly like you know this is beneath us they had you know this attitude go through much of the story and then the contest begins and it's a dance off and it's all this other nonsense and i really expected it you know like and they're just like going along with it they're like ooh, we're gonna do a relay race through the crooked market yay like it, it really didn't fit. Like, they just kind of went along with the farcical nature of it because I guess, you know, we were supposed to go along with the farcical nature of it. Um, and it, it just, it makes it stand out a little more. Like, I, my opinions have not changed on reread and reflection. You know, I, I'm, I'm a little less emotional about it. Like, like, I'm not as disappointed as I was, but I still don't think they can have it both ways. You know, they could do the twist and turn it into a farcical second act encounter, or you can have your non-traditional narrative structure with, you know, a first act that is, you know, 68% of the story. But I don't think you can do both. I think that having that first act go so long and so deep into the story set you up for one thing and then twisting it to another it's just too late i don't think you can change the tone that deep into the story and and have it feel satisfying 
you know, if they had changed the tone early on and we got that twist after, say, issue six or seven, it would have landed a little better. Or if they had gone this deep and then maintained the tone, it wouldn't have taken me out of the story as much the way it did. I think there was an issue of tonality throughout the entire run. I think that the first act lasted considerably longer than any other act in the book by several issues. And with that set up what was clearly meant to be a contest of arms and then to go so far as have dinner scenes with pin the tail on the pogger pog and have competitions be weddings and arm wrestling competitions interspersed with blight spoke interdimensional reality bending battles to the death but then a death awards a losing point you know it was it was something that i feel like we were meant to be thrown by and I feel like in rereading it, the history of the Iraqan mutants was kind of the tether that kept my my sense of what the stakes were in this. Because when things got completely ridiculous, I was kind of like, what's the point here? We're at one point losing by over over eight points. Like this is this is a little ridiculous. And then as mentioned before, every kill of Gorgon's battle counted for an individual point. I would have been foaming at the mouth with anger and confusion if I were actually a part of the story. So I feel like in rereading it, my my emotional attachment to the story was a little bit lesser for for good and for better and for worse. We were introduced to some amazing new characters through the Iraqi Swordbearers and even the Vile Locust on Iraqi himself. Does anybody have a favorite standout character that was introduced in the Ten of Swords event? Oh, Iska. Iska for sure. Uh, Iska is, I, I would love to see her get a seat on the Quiet Council now with Arako rejoining Krakoa. I would like to see Iska, not in a solo title, but I think that she would work well on the, I mean, she would be a, she would be an ace in the hole in whatever team she were put on, you know? So I feel like, I feel like maybe the Hellions title might see some Arakan mutants there in kind of a behavioral crash course on rehabilitation and assimilation. Uh, but who knows, you know, I, I think otherwise, if I if I couldn't pick Iska, I would say Tarn the Uncaring, just because I have to find something redeeming about the inclusion of Hellions, not the content of Hellions. I think Zeb Well did a fantastic job with his two issues that ran concurrent with Ten of Swords. But that said, I think Tarn the Uncaring was, and the Vile Locust by association, are the big takeaway from that for me, and I believe them to be re- uh, returning in the upcoming or the the currently running wow because it's holy shit it's almost the end of the year uh reign of x yeah i i had a bunch i loved i loved iska i love bay i love solemn uh i love red root and i am really excited to see more of those four characters moving forward i think isco probably gets the nod over everyone only because and it goes back to you know my um the fact that house of x2 is still my favorite like house of x2 is the the one that really that's my linking point um i know some people like the uh, out of the red issues from hawks pox you know the the five and the resurrection protocols but i i just feel like moira's 10 lives the different versions like that is the big game here and 
the introduction of a mutant whose power is that she can't lose when the entire premise of Moira's 10 lives is that mutants always lose. Like that is, Iska's just such a key part. I am so excited for Iska Moira interaction in the future. I don't know how much Red Root we're going to get as long as he stays in that vial in the Crooked Market. And no, everybody seemed fine with it. Nobody cares. <laughs> coming. Like there was a tease of that, that like, there was a tease that, for Reign of X that like, they got to go back to the Crooked Market and get someone out. Um, I, I think my biggest takeaway was Bay. I think they added this character who interacted with an already existing character of Doug in such an interesting way, and they made her so fascinating and mysterious that just can't help not stand her. And I am excited to see more of what's going on, because we know she's on Krakoa, because, uh, self-friend, uh, Warlock <laughs> talked about how he didn't want to bug, uh, Doug and his wife Bay. So I, ima- I want to <laughs> imagine it's going to be a very interesting uh, honeymoon phase for those two young lovers. I also think that while the narrative of Hellions didn't fit into the overall story of S.W.O.R.D., I think it introduced something really interesting in um, Sinister obtaining Iraqi DNA and what that means for his own mutation experiments. Because we already know what chimeras are, and we already know how successful that was in a different timeline. But now he's going to mix some, some regular uh, Earth mutants with some Iraqi mutants, and I'm just like, well, what is that going to turn out like? Because we saw what some... What the you know the vile squad looked like <laughs> and i can't imagine you throw like nightcrawler parts on one of them and call it a day oh no oh my god if <laughs> if, if amino fetus were a bamf <gasps> oh my god uh, I, I didn't say my own. Um, I would say Bay definitely. I, I do love the idea of introducing a character that just enthralls Doug Ramsey so much to the point where he's like just like soulmate in love with him, and he forgets his previous soulmate Warlock. Um, so and and Kitty, we can't forget his previous soulmate before that was Kitty. <laughs> and and Rain in between. I mean, like he's 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 gone. And Betsy Still gets around. Betsy and Betsy too. He, like he was super into Betsy for like a hot minute. So. <laughs> and these are, uh God, you know, I, I, I never want to be like overtly sexual or crass, but then I remember who I'm talking to and I'm like, I feel a little better <laughs> about it. Um, I, I feel like Doug is only looking for like, you know, Warlock is his soulmate, right? And sure, now Bay is his wife, but you know, Warlock is his soulmate. Being linked up with Bay is just a the next progression in selecting more and more dominant women. Kitty wasn't particularly dominant until she became Kate. Betsy has always been wearing the pants, and now Bay will literally murder you. So the joke I was going to make was that I think Doug is just looking for someone to hold the key to his chastity cage. <laughs> I, I, I will, well, obviously that's amazing. I will argue that Kitty was pretty bossy, and Kitty kind of ran the X-Men for a number of years. <laughs> and a number of years. <laughs> it was all about Kitty for a very long time. That brings me to the last point of today. Um, what haven't we seen come out from the Ten of Swords event in the new Reign of X era that we're really looking forward to out of this event? What do they set up that we really want to see? I know personally, they haven't addressed Arako and Krakoa, and, and I just can't wait for them to finally get into that and address that. Hmm. 
for me, it's the reestablishment of the Captain Britain core and seeing all these amazing ideas of what Captain Britain is. Truthfully, I was not expecting a lot of animals. There are a lot of animal Captain Britons. <laughs> and I need a story, at least 30 issues about each one, specifically the frog one. That one's my favorite. Um, because. Uh, how do I want it? Where does a sword come in? How do I, I, I like there's too many details <laughs> that are missing. The, the majority I, of the animal ones, I know we went, um, we went back on that the first time in uh, an earlier episode of the podcast. But the majority of them, if you look in the issue, they have the universe designations listed and they all go back to like early issues of Excalibur and other stuff. Like they go back to previously established alternate animal universes or dinosaur universes. And you can find exactly like most of those are not new. Most of those are specifically pulled from remember that time they became dinosaurs. Remember that other time they became dinosaurs. Remember that time it was an animal world like they're all from those. Oh, and the swan. I love, I love oh, Betsy, swan, uh, I know. Betsy Swan. Betsy Swanson, no. I need a Captain Carrot type uh, Captain Britain book with Betsy as Betsy Swan. That would be amazing. <laughs> oh, I love that. I, ooh, big takeaway from Ten of Swords. I, you know, as I said, I'm excited to see Tarn the Uncaring possibly come back i am so excited about just sword that i was almost like oh you know that item they found at sword wait sword wasn't part of ten of swords as stupid as that sounds i think i want to see i want to see what happens with doug and bay i really do i want to see how quickly they unwrite this <laughs> in, in my in my opinion i feel like this this can't possibly last like bay has no place in new mutants so unless Doug is now just out of the team of New Mutants, I I can't possibly see a world in which that works out. Um, argument, she was introduced, so technically she is a new mutant introduced to everybody else. Wow. <laughs> she, oh, she, oh she's new. She's <laughs> new relative to everybody else. Yeah, no, I, I get, <laughs> I, I like her as a, quote, new mutant. I just don't like her as a new mute. You know what I mean? Like she, like who? She's just like three feet taller than everybody else. <laughs> but it's it's like it's it, it seriously it's it's set so up like Costa is going to lust over her heart. <laughs> so for me, looking ahead, I've already said my my big big thing that I'm most excited for is Iskamoira and that dynamic. But I think probably focusing it to Reign of X, because we might not even get that over the next phase of story, is Arrakens on the Quiet Council. I feel like one of them, you know, probably Iska, but we definitely need one of them on the Quiet Council and that um, added dynamic. Um, and then going back for Red Root, I think they're going to go back for Red Root. Um, it might even be led by the you know, Arako Krakoa merge. Like we know how much Arako loves Doug and how much Krakoa loves Red Root. And, you know, they might send Doug or someone to go find her. And then, you know, what type of conflicts that could make between having two of them, Doug not being the only special boy, because there's a red root there as well. Like, I think there's some some good story there that I'm excited for. That'll probably be during this Reign of X phase. Mm -hmm. 